Here at Sagebrush, we are passionate about knowing Christ and making Christ known. We're on this earth to spread the message of Jesus here and across the globe. Through M1, because of your contributions, we had the opportunity to focus on doing just that in a multitude of ways in 2022, including providing 62 new facilities in 27 countries. Throughout last year's M1 Capital Campaign, because of your generosity and desire to go above and beyond for the Kingdom of God, we raised $4,251,154.97. Your generosity exceeded our expectations, and because of that, we are funding 13 more projects to build various much-needed facilities in Brazil, Peru, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, Zambia, Senegal, Kenya, Ghana, Burundi, Mexico, and Nicaragua. Check these videos out. The wonderful people of Sagebrush have committed to fund your church here in Kaiyo. Wow, praise God. Praise the Lord. Amen. Pretty good, yeah, huh? Yeah. You think you'll be able to reach more people here yeah. in this place? Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah, thank you, Sagebrush. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Sagebrush Church. We want to thank you very much for helping us to get a building. Thank you, Sagebrush Church, to help us get our church. This church will help us through the gospel to reach many people for Jesus. Thank you, Brothers and sisters of State Church, Church, with your help, it will be possible to build a sports court coverage and have a safe and welcoming space. So, for all who have contributed, we want to say thank you. I want to say thank you, sisters, for your love. These are just a few of the updates from our new 13 projects. As dedicated followers of Christ, it's our job to do everything we're capable of doing to ensure that the gospel is spread far and wide to the very ends of the earth. Every time you give here at Sagebrush, a portion of that goes to new buildings and new churches all around the world. Thank you for your continued generosity. Find out more information at m1.sagebrush.church or on the Sagebrush app. Now that, that should put a big smile on your face. For those of you who are new to Sagebrush, right at the end of the pandemic, we did a capital campaign. We said all the money we're going to go overseas to start churches, and the goal was to start just over 50 churches. Well, you guys were so generous with so much money coming in that we moved from about 52 projects to 62 projects. Well, the money kept coming in, and you saw $4.3 million came in as a result. So out of that money that's already been given, we were able to start now 13 more projects. That gives us a grand total of 75 churches that you have started over the course of the last year. Now, I, I would give anything if more churches would do this kind of thing, but I'm glad that we get to be a part of it. 
And so every time you drop your tithes into the collection box, your offerings in, every time you give it online through push pay, I want you to know that you're making a difference. And, and that now that the M1 campaign is coming to a close, now we're giving to the general fund. And I want you to know when that general fund starts up in July 1st, we're going to be starting another 12 to 15 churches over the course of the next year just off the normal tithes and offerings because we're a group of people who want to leave this world in a little bit better shape than the way we found it. And friends, one day you're going to stand before God and I think you're going to hear well done for the churches that you've started. Think about the lives that you have impacted because of your generosity. Doesn't the Bible say, Jesus said, if anyone even gives a cup of cold water in my name, he will write that down and reward us someday. Well, can you imagine the reward in heaven when you literally see thousands of people who have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? So thank you for your generosity. Thank you for being the church and not just attending one. All right, let's get in. To the message today. We're starting a brand new series, or actually we're continuing a series called Bride and Gloom. Let me start off by telling you a story. Uh, there was a newlywed farmer and his young bride. They had recently gotten married, and the mother-in-law was coming to visit the farm for the very first time. Now, some of us, we ended up with really good mother-in-laws, didn't we? Others of us, not so much. Well, this is one of those mother-in-laws that was a not-so-much-good mother-in-law. She was kind of a nag. She griped and she complained all the time. She gave unwanted advice. Nothing was ever good enough for her. So she gets to the farm and she begins to look around and she says, I want you to show me the farm so I can inspect it for myself. Well, the young farmer tried to be as kind to her as he possibly could be, took her from one place to another. They entered into one barn, and there was a mule that was there, and the mother-in-law got too close to the back end of the mule, and the mule kicked, kicked the mother-in-law in the head, and she fell to her death. She was dead right there on the spot. It was an absolute tragedy. Well, some days go by. It's time for her funeral. And you know how funerals go. There's always a group of people that come into a line and they offer their condolences to those who have lost their loved one. And the preacher's watching the drama unfold before him and he notices something kind of unusual. He notices that every time a woman shakes the hand of the young farmer, that uh, he shakes his head yes and he whispers something in her ear. And then every time a man comes by, he shakes his head no, and he whispers something in his ear. And he did this every time. Every time a woman came by, shook his head yes. And every time a man came by, shook his head no. Well, the preacher thought that's unusual. So after the ceremony, he pulled him aside. He said, hey, let me ask you something here. What in the world's going on? I saw you shaking your head yes with the women, but no with the men. He said, oh, preacher, I know exactly what you're talking about. Women would come by, they would shake my hand, they'd say, oh, this is an awful tragedy. And I'd shake my head, yes, and I'd say, yes, it is. Then the men would come by and they'd say, can I borrow that mule? <laughs> and I'd say, no, it's booked up for a year. <laughs> Friends, we're talking about marriage. 
in this series. And so if you find yourself fortunate enough to have someone sitting next to you or someone at home sitting next to you that loves you and wants to spend the rest of your life with you, this is our opportunity to fine-tune our marriages. It's our opportunity to evaluate our marriages and pick a few things that we need to work on to get the traction to become the soulmates that we always dream we could be. Now, I'm very much aware that I'm talking to a lot of people who are single. Let me just tell you, statistically, you're probably going to get married. Most people get married at least once in their lifetime. It's like 95% of people get married. So you need to take good notes because the relationship principles that we're talking about in this series are relationship principles that work in any relationship that you have got. All right, so we're going to start all the way in the beginning in the book of Genesis. Now, some of you are thinking, Todd, we just finished a whole four-week series in the book of Genesis talking about Adam and Eve. There is absolutely no way you eked out a fifth message over Adam and Eve, and you would be wrong because that's what we're talking about today. It was beautiful in the beginning, wasn't it? Adam and Eve were in the coolness of the garden, walking with God. God's the one who said it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. So he's the one who made a helper suitable for him. He's the one who put Adam into a deep sleep. He's the one who pulled the rib from his flesh. He's the one who formed the woman from the flesh. And when Adam saw her, oh, honey, hush, he was immediately in love. He was smitten by her. Now, now no doubt, all he's seen up to this point in time are a bunch of hippopotamuses and rhinoceroses, but when he sees her, he goes poetic. He says, oh, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. God's the one who performed the very first wedding. God's the one who gave away the very first bride. It was perfect. It was just the way it was so supposed to be. They were so secure, and they were so of one mind and of one heart. Well, if you've been a part of the last series, you know what happened. God placed a tree in the middle of the garden and said, listen, you can eat from any tree you want to. Just stay away from this one tree. Now, we don't know how much time went by between Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. But when Genesis chapter 3 opens up, where's Eve? She's standing next to the tree. Look at what it says. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So Satan begins to question what God had to say, and he gives her a big old line, you know, says, you won't die, everything's going to be fine, you don't have to worry about anything. My goodness, your eyes will be open. You'll be able to call your own shot. You can be your own person. You can be your own God. It's the same technique that he still uses to this day. He whispers in your ear or your sinful mind whispers in your ear. And we say things like, God's holding out on me. And we begin to question the word of God, don't we? Did God really say that? Was that intended for me? Because we have this way in our sinful mind of justifying and twisting the word of God, don't we? I mean, come on. Did God really say you shouldn't have sex before marriage? Did God really say that? Because, my goodness, there's a whole lot of people out there having sex before marriage, and they seem to be doing just fine. Did God really say you shouldn't live together before you get married? Because there's lots of people doing that as well. Did God really say that, that we should keep the married bed pure? Did God really say there's only one way to get to heaven? Did he say that? 
I mean, come on, Todd. Are you telling me these billions of people that believe in other religions and other gods that they're wrong? I just believe that if someone's sincere, they can go to heaven. It's like God's on top of this mountain and all the religions lead to him. But didn't God say that Jesus said that I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to God the Father except through me? Didn't Jesus say there's just one way? Did God really say I should forgive? I should forgive those who have hurt me. I should love my enemies and pray for them. Did God really say that? Because if you look around, I tell you what, if you do that kind of thing, they're just going to hurt you again. Do you see what he's doing here? He's twisting the word of God. He's tickling her ears. Look at what happens. He says, you won't die, serpent said to the woman, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, when I was a kid, I always thought that Adam was the one who took the fruit and ate it, and that sin came through Adam. But as we can clearly see here in this passage of Scripture, it wasn't the man's fault. It was the woman's fault, wasn't it? Now, if that's true, (laughs) you're going to sleep in another room tonight. You know that, right? (laughs) Now, if that's true, if it came through Eve, here's my question. Why is it that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, when he sat down to write the church in Rome, wrote that it was Adam's fault. Look at this. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Sin entered the world through one man, Adam. Now, that's not right. We just read over here in Genesis chapter 3 that it was clearly the woman, and I know how she did it. She pulled Adam aside, and she said, Hey, I got that fruit we're not supposed to have. If you want a little something, something tonight, you better eat this something, something right now. That's what I'm telling you right now. And so Adam, being the genius that he is, he said, something, something. I'll get something, something. So I eat this something, something. I get something, something later on. Okay, give me that something, something. I want something, something later on. That's what happened. I know that's what happened. I'm reading between the lines, but I believe that's what happened. Why does Adam get the blame? Well, verse 6 is the reason. He was there with her. He wasn't over in the orange orchard. He wasn't over where the apple trees were looking for golden delicious. He was right there. He didn't do a doggone thing. He listened to that serpent, twist his words, question God. He didn't speak up for God. He listened. And he didn't grab his wife and say, hey, what in the world are we thinking? We need to trust God. God's never lied to us. And I know his ways are different than our ways, and his thoughts are different than our thoughts, but he's never let us down, has he? So let's get out of here, Eve. Let's get out of here right now. But he didn't do any of that, did he? He didn't say, hey, Eve, let's run. No, he just sat there. And he watched her take that fruit and eat it, and destroy her life. And I just want to shake Adam and say, why didn't you fight for her? Why didn't you help her? Why didn't you speak some truth into her life? 
I remember years ago when I was at another church, and first Christy and I had the opportunity to lead a small group. And we always looked forward to our small group time. It was always a great time. But we had just gotten done with a controversial issue, which was pretty heated discussion, and we didn't get to quite complete that discussion. And the next weekend, when we were going to meet again for the small group, um, Christy asked me, she said, well, should, should we meet without you? And I said, well, sure, it's our friends. Just go ahead and meet. I have a great small group. Don't worry about me being out of town. Just go ahead. Well, well, guess what? They ganged up on her. And they continued to have the conversation. Those little sinners waited for me to be out of town to gang up on my wife. So I called her at that night after the small group. I said, how'd the small group go? And she's crying to me. And she tells me what's happened. Now, friends, listen to me. Nobody messes with my wife except me. Do you understand what I'm saying right now? Nobody does. You come at my wife, I'm coming for you with everything that I've got. I fight for my wife. I fight for marriage, my marriage, intimacy with my bride. What in the world is wrong with Adam? What's wrong with most marriages today? They've given up and they've settled. They say things like, whatever, hey, whatever you want to do, you're going to do it anyway. And the intimacy and the closeness and the oneness, no, it's just passive. That's what it is. It's just passive. It's just a couple of roommates, no longer soulmates, no longer forging their path together. See if this describes any marriages that you might know. Husband comes home from a hard day at work. Never mind the wife's done the same thing. And she's in the kitchen and she's slaving away to prepare a meal for you and for the family. And where are you, gentlemen? You're probably in the front room. You're probably laying on the couch, flipping through channels, looking for something to stream, and you're not speaking and talking into your wife's life. You've given up. You somehow settled along the way. Somehow, what's on that TV or what's on your phone is more important than what's on your bride's heart. Let me give you another one. Passivity in relationships. You don't go on dates anymore. But you're certain to go on your 18 holes of golf. You're certain to still have your girls night out. You're certain to still have your time with the guys. Or how about this one, ladies? You come to bed in one of those grandma pajama potato head sack looking things. We should just get together and burn all those together. You know what I'm saying? Just burn under the ground. Not one man said amen, you big chicken. <laughs> Give you another one. Rather than dealing with the tough issues of your relationship, you just sweep them under the rug. You don't deal with them anymore. You've given up. You don't talk about hard things anymore because you tried before and it ended in a big fight and nothing got resolved, so you just gave up along the way. How many marriages here today and at home feel cheated? This wasn't what you signed up for. You got all gussied up, looked better than you've ever looked before, and you never looked that good since. And stood before your family and friends and before God, and you made vows, and you made a commitment, and your passion for each other was so red hot, we had to look away. It was so intense. When did you quit? When did you give up? When did you stop fighting for your marriage? 
me ask you a question. What's getting the best in your life right now? Who gets your best time? Who gets your best attention? Who gets your best effort? You know what it is for most people? It's their job. Because at their job, they're leaning in. They're engaging with other people. They're problem solving. They're coming up with solutions. And if they have to stay late, they'll stay late. They're more engaged at their job than they are in their home. And then they wonder why there's no closeness anymore. There's no intimacy anymore. There's no oneness anymore. There's no two souls working together for a common cause. Let me ask you another question. What's the goal of your marriage? What, what are you shooting for? If I pull you aside after service and say, what's the goal of your marriage? Would you be able to articulate something? But if I ask you this question, what's the goal at your job? What's your quarterly goal? What are you shooting for right now? I bet you have something. What are you hoping to accomplish by the end of the year in your job? I bet you've got an idea of what you're shooting for, of what you're going after. But when it comes to your married relationship, we don't have a clue what we're doing. Christy and I have a goal. We talk about it all the time. We want to be the couple who's 85 years old. And we're at parks. We go to parks, and then you can't walk very far at 85 years old. So we're taking hits off each other's oxygen tanks. That's what we're doing. And we're sitting down in the car, and we're hoping teenagers will pull up next to us, and we're going to start making out in front of the teenagers. That's what we're going to do. And we're going to use tongue. I want you to know that as well, all right? And I know I went too far, and I don't even care right now. You understand what I'm saying? That's the goal. How am I going to get to that goal? It's a daily choice. What's my daily choice? I'm going to love her like nobody's ever loved her before. I'm going to treat her as the princess that she is, as a child, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. I remember years ago, we did a sermon series on marriage, and we talked about the needs, that the needs of a man are completely different than the needs of a woman. And so we gave an assignment, and many of you went home and you did the assignment. You got a little card, a little index card. You wrote one through five, and you wrote down the top five needs. Ladies, you wrote down your top five needs. And men, you went home and you wrote down your top five needs, and then you exchanged those cards. You were to exchange those cards. You were to put them on your mirror. You were to put them in your Bible. You were to put them in your car, someplace where you would see those things over and over again. Because what gets your attention gets you out of sight, out of mind, right? You want to have those things in front of you, so you remember to do those things. And I said, you got to train yourself that every day when you wake up you say I'm going to meet one of my wife's needs I'm going to meet one of my husband's needs I'm going to pick one of those five things and I'm going to express love to them in that way I'm going to go the second mile and show them how much I love them so my wife and I we, we did the same things we asked you to do so I said would you write down your top five needs and so she did and I wrote down my top five needs and we exchanged those needs remember the goal is that you meet at least one of those needs every single day here was my wife's top five needs. Number one was affection. Affection. I said, well, I could do that one. She said, it's not sex. I said, oh. <laughs> I, did, I, did, I, was, I wasn't aware that wasn't. She said, it's not sex. So I want you to hold my hand. I want you to hug me. I want you to hold me. I want you to cuddle with me. Affection. I said, okay. I can do that. So what's the second one? She said, communication. I said, so you want me to talk to you? She said, yes, I'd like you to talk to me. Said, okay, I can do that. What's the third one? She said, encouragement. I said, so you want me to say something nice when I talk to you? 
She said, yeah, that's kind of the goal. She said, when you do talk to me, you'd say something nice to me. I said, okay. I can do that. What's the next one? She said, safety. I said, what do you mean? She said, I want to know there's a roof over my head. I want to know there's food in the pantry. I want to know that our basic needs are taken care of. I said, okay. I can do that. I said, what's the last one? She said, time. I said, so you want to spend time with me? She said, yeah. I said, okay. I can do that. And so my goal is to look at those five needs and to meet one of those needs every single day. And so I handed her my top five needs. Here's what it looked like. So I said, your goal is to... <laughs> Every man like is going, we're doing this when we get home. <laughs> Listen, those needs won't be met on the golf course. And if they are, I'm going to jail. Okay? That's just the way it's going to be. Those needs won't be met in the garage. Unless the door is closed and the kids are asleep. Do you understand what I'm talking about? It's just a joke. <laughs> the needs will be met when you finally get off your duff and start meeting them. And you start being the husband you promised her you'd be. And you start putting her needs ahead of your own. And ladies, you do the exact same thing. So what would be stopping you from going home and saying, these are my top five needs? And men, take it a little more seriously than I did. I know sex will still be number one. And it was my number one. But there were four other things that I wrote down for her that I said, if you did these things or continued, because she was already doing them, you continue to do these things, well, you'll never lose my heart. And then that the goal that you would never lose your wife or never lose your husband's heart. But so many people, they just kind of throw in the towel. Whatever, whatever you want to do, whatever, I don't care. We're just so stinking passive. You got to fight. And it's a daily decision to fight for your marriage. Fight for intimacy. Fight for oneness. Let me give you the second thing that Adam did wrong. He hid from his reality. Genesis 3, 8 says, And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So what happens is he blew it. She blew it. And rather than coming clean, they try to hide it. They try to hide it from each other. They try to hide it from God. Can I ask you a question? When has hiding anything from God ever worked for you? Do you think there's something that you've done that he's not aware of? And he's calling out to you, where are you? And he just longs for you to come clean. He longs for you to own your stuff. And when you do, when you finally say, I'm the one to blame, I'm the one that did it, I'm the one that messed up, what happens? He forgives you. You repent of it, you turn away from it, all of a sudden you start a new direction for a new day. It's the same way with your marriage. How many marriages represented here today and at home, you are sleeping with the elephant in the room? You don't talk about hard things anymore. Somewhere along the way you just settle and there's issues. It's like there's this black cloud that follows you everywhere you go. 
And for some reason, you won't bring these things up anymore. You're disappointed. You're disappointed in yourself. You're disappointed in your spouse. But you won't address it. And maybe it's because you don't know how to. So here's your homework assignment if you choose to accept it. What are you refusing to talk about that needs to be talked about? What's that one area where you're stuck? How about you do this? Go home, sit at the table, and write it down. And without any emotion, without getting fired up and yelling and screaming and cursing and throwing sarcasm and being mean to each other, you just attack that problem together until you get to a solution. You write what that issue is, and then both of you own your stuff. You say, I'm responsible for this, and she says, I'm responsible for this. This is why we're in the mess we're in. And then you start brainstorming some new ideas on how you can make things better. And then you wake up every day, and you do the solution. You fight for it. You fight for reconciliation. You fight to be together. Let me tell you what the problem with a lot of marriages is. They're fighting to win. And I've said this a thousand times, but when God puts two and makes them one, and one of you wins an argument and the other one loses, you both lost. Because the two of you have become one, and not just one in name, but your souls have become one. Your spirits have become one. You've become one flesh. So that's the second thing that he did wrong is he, he's, he hit it. He didn't want to deal with it. And if you continue to do that, you're just going to crush your marriage. You're never going to have the intimacy that you want to have. you got to deal with the tough stuff in a God-honoring way. Let me give you the last thing he did wrong. He played the blame game. God asked Adam, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I command you not to eat from? The man said, well, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So what's Adam doing? He, he blames God. He blames the woman. Eve, she goes and she blames the serpent. It's always somebody else's fault. Write this down if you're taking notes. You can fix the blame or you can fix the problem. You can't do both. Let me say that again. You can fix the blame or you can fix the problem, but you can't do both. And some of us have become absolute pros at throwing stuff in our spouse's face at twisting their words and making them feel responsible for every issue that comes up in your relationship. So let's play a little game. I'm going to give you four statements. If you've ever said these statements, just give yourself a point. You ready? First one. We wouldn't be in the mess we're in if it wasn't for you. If you've ever said that or ever thought that, just give yourself a point. Number two. I wouldn't have done what I did if you wouldn't have done what you did. That's my favorite one. If you've done that, if you've thought that, if you've said that, give yourself a point. Third one, I can't help that you took it wrong. I can't control your emotions. I can't control your mind. I can't control the fact that you misunderstood what I was saying. I can't help that you took it wrong. If you've ever said that, ever thought that, give yourself a point. How about this one? You started it. So how'd you do? Because I'm four for four. And when I worked on this message, you know how long it took me to write those four things down? About two seconds. Because those are my go-tos. To twist it, to manipulate it, to not take responsibility, and to push it off on somebody else. 
And every time I've done that, how well do you think that's gone over? Do you think that ever brought about the oneness that God desires for my wife and I? There was a dog food company, and they pulled in their chief salespeople in this big conference room. And the president of the company, he said, hey, men what, and women, what do you think of our new advertisement slogan? I said, oh, it's the best. It's the best in the business, boss. It's the best in the business. He said, that's good. He said, what do you think of our new packaging? Oh, that's wonderful. The new packaging's absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. Best in the business. He says, that's great. He said, what do you think about the sales force that we have here? And they kind of looked around, kind of puffed up their chest. They said, you know what, boss? I think we're pretty good, too. So the boss said, now let me see if I got this right. Got the best advertisement in the business. Got the best product look in the business. Got the best sales force in the business. Can someone please explain to me why we're 17th in the dog food business? And one of the men said, it's those lousy dogs. They won't eat the stuff. <laughs> it's always somebody else's fault. It's your wife's fault. It's the husband's fault. It's your mom's fault. It's the way you were raised. It's culture. At what point in time do you finally say, it's me? There was a little boy, he went to school, has lunch. Seeing there in the cafeteria across the way was a friend of his. He opened up his little lunch box. He said, you got to be kidding me. Bologna sandwich. Bologna sandwich. This is the fourth bologna sandwich this week. And the little boy across said, I bet if you talk to your mom and you tell her you don't like bologna, she'd probably pack you something different. And the little guy said, Mom, I pack my own lunches. <laughs> At least he admitted it. No one wins with the blame game. And when you and I play the blame game, we are being lame. Let me say that again. You play the blame game, you're being lame. So grow up. And say, it's my fault. See, you can laugh this off and continue to do the same things you've always been doing and have the same marriage you always had. Or you can finally learn to say the words, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done whatever it was. And then you follow that up with, what can I do to make it right? Learn those few sentences. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said it that way. I shouldn't have treated you that way. I shouldn't have done it that way. Now, what can I do to make it right? One of the most freeing days of your life is when you take responsibility for your attitude and for your actions. When you look in the mirror and say, it's me. I need to give my best. I need to put forth the effort. Now, why is this so important? Well, guess what? When you walked down that aisle, wherever that was, and you exchanged vows and rings, who was there? Well, your family was there. Your friends were there. And God was there. And you will be held accountable for how you treated your spouse. And on that day of judgment, he's going to look at you men, and he's going to say, did you love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? And ladies, did you respect your husband? Were you his biggest fan? Did you encourage him? Did you motivate him? Were you always in his corner? Did you play the blame game? 
Did, did you hide from the real issues? Did you fight for your marriage? Or did you fight against it? Friends, we have the opportunity to soar in these relationships. And if we would just not do the same things Adam did, well, you'd have the best marriage you could ever dream. Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, we've done a lot of damage. How do I know we've done a lot of damage? Because we're all sinners. We've all been selfish. We've all wounded each other with our words. We've all let each other down. Lord, help us to say we're sorry. Help us to ask for forgiveness and to make things right. And Lord, when those holy moments come, when someone asks for forgiveness, God, I pray, the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would be quick to forgive just as you've forgiven us. Lord, for those marriages that are just struggling, they're barely holding on. Lord, I pray that they would get the help that they so desperately need. And that they would start putting the needs of the other person ahead of themselves. And they would start enjoying the relationship that they always thought they would enjoy when they got married so many years ago. Lord, hold us as we hold each other. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.